Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is an MCRIT podcast. Today on the podcast, a paper I was tangentially involved in on the treatment of massive pulmonary embolism. It's going to be a game changer, I think. But before we get to that really quick, um, we still have a few tickets left for the Reanimate Resuscitative ECMO Conference in San Diego, November 8th to 9th, if you're interested, buy soon because they're about to be sold out. And you can get those tickets at reanimateconference.com. That address again is reanimateconference.com. All right, let's get right into the show. Ho, 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 but you knew we weren't going to get right into the show. Why? Because you're listening to the free version of this podcast, inexplicably. It's a true mystery to me why you'd be listening to the free version. When you could be listening to the paid version that would never have an ad like this, but more importantly, you'd be getting all of the best information to take care of your critically ill and resuscitative patients. You would be the cutting edge of the care of really sick patients in the emergency department and the ICU. Uh, all of the acute critical care goodness, all of the literature review, all of the episodes, none of these ridiculous ad spots. You would just be relaxing with the knowledge that you are as up-to-date as possible on the care of really sick patients. So come to mcrit.org slash join, mcrit.org slash join, and join, and then you'll never have to listen to this ad again. All right, now let's really get into the show. All right, so, you know, many of you have, if you're in the resuscitative specialties, either given full-dose thrombolytics to patients with massive PEs, or perhaps you had a patient with high-risk submassive, and if you want to understand these categories better, I did an entire show on uh, my vision of a PERC team protocol that doesn't require a PERC team. I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but you might have given half-dose to the high-risk submassive, and in either case, it's just, it doesn't feel optimal. Uh, you know, when a patient's peri-arrest, then giving a full dose of thrombolytics, usually for me it's full dose tenecteplase, makes a lot of sense. But when I have patients who are on vasopressors, um, therefore defined as massive, but they're looking pretty good on those vasopressors, and I'm like, do I really need to give a full dose of thrombolytic? In most of those cases in the past, I've usually given a half dose to those patients. And then you have the high-risk submassives. You have a patient who may be desaturating uh, with a uh, PE. In addition, they might have... Uh, tachycardia or a shock index that's greater than one and you're worried about them, you're worried about they having a sudden decline during their hospital stay and dying and you're like, I should do something and you're like, oh, I guess I could give half dose TPA but maybe the patient has some bleeding risks and you're like, oh, I don't really want to give the half dose. I'd rather interventional radiology, do something with a much lower dose of TPA. And you're like, oh, let's get in some PA catheters. Maybe your hospital's pushing the ECOS, even though there's really no evidence of efficacy of that device. Um, and you're like, wow, that would be better because then they're only going to be getting a very, very small dose of TPA, like something between six and 24 milligrams of TPA. And you're like, that sounds better. And then you try to arrange it and it's a logistical nightmare in some places, even like good you know, referral center type places. I'm not going to mention any names. And then, you know, sometimes I've sent patients at Janus General for the actual procedure. I've had an interventional radiologist say, yeah, that sounds right. I'll, I'll do it. And they come in and then the patient like can't sit still on the table. And I've had patients sent back to me and be like, can't do it. Sorry. And I'm just like, there's got to be an easier way. And, you know, my buddy Josh Farkas, who you hear from just a bit in the episode, he was doing something where he would give a milligram bolus and then a milligram an hour for 24 hours, just like the PA catheters would be administering if you sent a patient to IR. And I'm like, well, that makes a lot of sense, but there wasn't a lot of literature on it. And, you know, it's 24 hours. And, you know, most of the time the ICUs did not want to take these patients on this uh, off-label type thing. Well, we found an abstract by a gentleman named... Amit Aiken 
in Turkey. And he's done a bunch of work. He's a cardiologist. He's done a bunch of work on thrombolysis for PE using much lower doses than we've seen in the literature. And we found this abstract on the reduced systemic thrombolysis given peripherally for massive pulmonary embolism, not even high-risk submassive, but massive pulmonary embolism. And we actually got in contact with them. We're like, come on, man, why is this not in the literature? You got to publish it. An abstract's not enough. No one's going to change care from an abstract. And he's like, and I'm like, but no, this is, this is really important. It's got to get in the literature. And he's like, well, you know, if you want to do the work, you can knock yourself out. And we actually got it published now in the literature. So what I figured I'd do on this podcast is walk you through the paper, and you can get the paper freely um, on the website, the, the show notes for this episode. And then uh, I actually got Josh Farkas on the line, and the two of us talked about it a little bit. And uh, we actually went into some other uh, wrinkles of the management of sick pulmonary embolism that wasn't even uh, directly related to the paper that I also found incredibly interesting. So I think you're going to love this podcast. I hope you do. All right, let's get to the uh, paper All right, this is Reduced Dose Systemic Fibrinolysis in Massive Pulmonary Embolism, a pilot study. And it is a pilot study. It is 37 patients. It's observational. It's not an RCT. But for many reasons, I think this is something you could start using right now if you agree and read the paper and your group at your hospital likes it. All right, so what they did is they had 37 patients with massive PE. Um, So it was uh, CT confirm pulmonary embolism requiring vasopressors after initial resuscitation. So true, massive PE, but not crashing, going to die in front of you massive. So I call these low-risk massive, or, you know, there needs to be better terms for all this. I discussed that in that PERC episode. But the point is, they're massive, defined by the need for vasopressors to maintain hemodynamic stability, but they're not crashing. All right, and they excluded the patients with the standard TPA bleeding exclusions. And all of these patients had a pre- and post-echo and they were followed up for six months after the initial uh, hospitalization. And then the intervention was they gave these patients Altaplase, TPA, 25 milligrams over six hours. And in the study protocol, that could be repeated times one for an additional six hours. None of the patients in the study actually needed that, uh, as we'll discuss shortly, but that was part of the study protocol. But the main intervention was 25 milligrams over six hours given through a peripheral standard IV or a central line, but didn't need to be a central line. Now, uh, of interest, heparin, 70 unit uh, per kilogram bolus, followed by 1,000 units per hour was started after the completion of TPA. Uh, Just as a foreshadowing, I personally probably would not have given the bolus, but they did in this study, probably because the TPA dose was low enough that they could get away with it. Uh, My standard practice is to, as soon as the PTT drops to twice normal, Um, then I just start the heparin and I don't actually give a bolus. They gave a bolus after the completion of the TPA in this study. The success of the intervention was defined as clinical improvement of hemodynamic symptoms, restoration of stable hemodynamic status, meaning they get off vasopressors, along with three echo criteria, um, which are discussed in the paper. I'm not going to go through them, uh, without death or major complications. And major complications in this case were the things you'd expect. Ischemic stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, Uh, embolism, either coronary or uh, peripheral, and bleeding requiring transfusion. And the actual primary endpoints of the study were in-hospital mortality, major complications, development of pulmonary hypertension, and right ventricular distension during the hospitalization. Secondary endpoints were six-month mortality, six-month pulmonary hypertension, six-month RV dysfunction. Outcome. All of the patients, all 37, became hemodynamically stable. They got off their pressors, their troponins decreased, their echo markers got better. 
18 patients had a repeat CT angiography 24 hours after the thrombolytics. And of these 18 patients, total lysis was observed in 16 of them, and the remaining two had greater than 75% lysis of the thrombus. There were no major bleeding in any of the patients. Three patients had minor bleeding, but, and that was like epistaxis in two patients and gingival bleeding in one patient, but not during the period where TPA was on board. Both, uh, I'm sorry, all three of those bleeding episodes uh, were after two days in the case of the epistaxis and three days after the thrombolytics in the case of the gingival bleeding. So far more likely associated with the heparin rather than the TPA. Now, what does this mean? Well, you're gonna say it's a small study, there was no control group, and you'd be absolutely right about both of those things. But let's think this through a bit. First of all, this was in massive PE patients. So I think we could easily extrapolate this dose as not being uh, too low for high-risk submassives, meaning the 50 we're giving currently to our high-risk submassives is probably too much if we could take care of massives with 25 over six. And remember, it's not just the same dose. It's 50 over an hour in our standard Moppet protocol right now versus 25 over six hours. So a much lower dose per hour. And there's metabolism of this TPA throughout that entire period of time. So this is overall a much lower dose than the 50 over one hour. And so that's in massive patients. So now all of a sudden in the lower spectrum of massive and high-risk submassive, it would seem from this that you'll have efficacy at least in patients with a much lower dose, 25 over six peripherally, without having to take the patient to IR to put in catheters. And you'd be like, well, what we need is a control group to evaluate harm. And you know, ordinarily I agree with you, and I'm not saying this study's perfect for this, but think about it. We could ostensibly use the risk data, the safety data from the other trials of even the higher doses of thrombolytics, first of all, so we could look at the MOP and say, well, there were no bleeding of serious ilk in the 50, um, do we really think there'd be in a 25 over six versus 50 over an hour? Well, no, we could probably use that group. We could also extrapolate the IR data for this dose of thrombolytics because, uh, in fact, the IR data would look worse because there's no procedural complications of actually putting in the big catheters in this study. But the bleeding risk, there's no reason to think there's a different bleeding risk from giving that same dose of TPA through PA catheters uh, as through a peripheral IV. Yeah, the efficacy may be different, though this one showed great efficacy, but the harm data, it, it, the brain doesn't know that it came in through the PA catheters in terms of the risk. So I think you could extrapolate a lot of various other trials to this paper and therefore say, yeah, the safety data is probably there for this dose. What we care about is the efficacy data. And I think this study was good for the efficacy data. You know, if it was a mixed bag, you know, like if, you know, 10 of the patients got better out of the 37. You'd be like, I don't know what to do with this. Would those same 10 have been okay anyway? What have you? But when you have such resoundingly good results, um, it does have a signal there, even though this is an observational trial. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have additional trials of this to be really sure. But I think personally, my personal opinion is if you were willing for a high-risk submassive or the lower spectrum of massive already to give 50 over an hour makes a lot of sense, I think, to just give 25 over six for a few reasons. One, you haven't burned any bridges. I'll talk about this with Josh more, but if after the six hours, the patients know better, then you could just change your strategy. You could send them to IR at that point. If you wanted to, you could give them 50 over an hour at that point. Um, if at any point during the 25 over six, the patient becomes more unstable and you're like, I want to switch tacks. 
um, you could actually just stop at that point. You could either look at how much you gave and subtract that from the 50 or just say, I'm just going to give a straight up 50 over an hour right now. So you haven't burned any bridges as opposed to when you take a patient and give them the 50 over one hour or the 100 over two hours, you've burned a lot of bridges. You can't take that back. If at the two hour and 10 minute mark, the patient starts, you know, uh, coughing up blood or starts getting obtunded from an intracranial hemorrhage. So I don't know. I'd love you to take a look at the paper and see what you think, but I think this is potentially something that can be used now. And I'm super curious to hear what you think in the comments. And I just think it's a much safer way to go. Now, if anyone wants to take this and compare it to a control group of just heparin, perhaps in high risk submassive or compare it to, um, you know, the standard 50 over six, uh, 50 over an hour, that would be a great trial. I think there's definitely equipoise to do that. Or, and this is where I think it would be really fun, though I don't know who's going to take this up. Uh, it would be great to see this 50 over 6 compared to IR, right? Like that would be an amazing trial because if there's no difference, then we save ourselves a whole lot of hassle sending these patients to interventional radiology. All right, one more point before we get to the discussion with Josh. Um, anytime you're going to go down a pathway of a TPA intervention, in my personal opinion, if the patient's sick enough to consider giving thrombolytics, I really, 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 really like to have a femoral art line and a femoral uh, venous central catheter in before I give the TPA. I, I really, really, and you don't want to backwall all this because then the TPA, you're going to cause bleeding. But if you have someone who knows what they're doing with an ultrasound, having these lines in before you give the TPA means that if the patient does decompensate and needs something later on, like now, you know, the 25 over six wasn't enough. You want to send them to IR and IR is like all leery. They're like, I don't want to do this procedure on this patient who just had TPA. Um, you tell them, oh, no, no, you could just float a wire through my existing uh, central line and, and you'll be good to go that way. Um, and if they need to, you know, get transitioned to ECMO because they really go downhill. Now, all of a sudden, it's super easy transition versus trying to get these lines in post-TPA. So I really, on any of my sick PE patients, very quickly will have a uh, clean double, a femoral art and femoral venous line. They could be on the same leg because there's a low chance they're going on ECMO. You could do them on different legs if you want. It doesn't really matter. But having both of those access ports in the common femoral vessels is really, really potent uh, for predicting and helping out what the patient's later course is. All right, so that was my piece on this. Read the paper, and then here's the discussion with Josh. My name's Josh Farkas. I'm a medical ICU attending in the University of Vermont Medical Center. Yeah, and you're the at least half of MCRIT. You are a powerhouse of knowledge and information, first on the PalmCRIT blog, but I think you've made perhaps even a greater impact with the Internet Book of Critical Care, which is, I think, the best textbook of critical care because it's the only one that's updated on some regular basis rather than once every four years. Thank you. Satisfaction guaranteed or all your money back. There you go. Can't beat that. All right. So what we're going to be talking about today is the idea of lower dose thrombolytics, even lower dose than the half dose people may be used to for both high-risk submassive, but for the paper I just got through describing, this was actually in low-risk massive patients. You were the one who first turned me on to this stuff, Josh. Tell me a little bit about how you discovered it and how your practice has changed. I think the dosing of thrombolytics for pulmonary embolism is really fascinating. I think this remains a huge information gap where the initial dose was arbitrary. I think the 100 was just chosen because it was a random number. 
There's one randomized control trial suggesting that 50 versus 100 is equivalent. And then there's a handful of studies looking at patients at high risk of bleeding who've gotten these like tiny doses of thrombolysis and improved. So I think that it's really unclear to me what the dose response curve is, or even if there is a dose response curve, I think it's also possible that some patients have rubbery clot that will not respond to TPA and some patients have like very TPA responsive clot. And I can almost imagine a situation where it doesn't really super matter the exact dose that you're giving. You're just eliminating all the TPA responsive clot. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I'd add one more wrinkle, which is Jeff Klein believes that some people are just genetically predisposed to resistance to TPA, and they may need much higher doses. So it might be that these dose establishing were for those patients, and now everyone else is just getting a radical overdose or a radically unnecessary high dose despite not needing it. And in fact, it was your work I saw you had the idea of giving the same 25 milligrams over 24 hours as you'd get through a PA catheter at placed by interventional radiology with the idea of the catheter itself before the ECOS, whether we believe those or not, but before the ECOS, the catheter itself was doing nothing except geographically locating where it emerged from the catheter. But then the continued circulation would ostensibly, regardless of how it got into the body, keep circulating that TPA. Um, And you were doing that for a while and actually stopped. Tell me a little bit of that story. Yeah. So my belief has been and continues to be that all of the TPA that we give to patients goes to the lungs. Most patients have bilateral clot involving a lot of different arteries. So I think the concept of dripping TPA locally into a specific clot in the lung, just it doesn't hold theoretical or experimental water. And there's a fair body of evidence that you can give TPA via these interventional radiology placed catheters and patients improve, but I just don't think that you need the catheter. You can give it peripherally. And the safety of doing this has been well established because there are large studies of patients dripping small amounts of TPA in through these catheters. And clearly if it's safe to go into the catheter, it's safe to go into the arm. So for a while, I did have a practice of sometimes giving like 25 milligrams of TPA over 24 hours, essentially the same exact protocol, same exact dosing, just via peripheral intravenous line for a patient who might have a high risk submassive PE, where you kind of really want to give them some therapy, but they're at higher risk of bleeding. And this almost gets back to this concept that you were mentioning about different patients having different balances of, you know, hyperfibrinolysis versus fibrinolysis and kind of Jeff Klein's work on that, which is patients respond incredibly differently to TPA. So one thing that I've noticed over the years is if you have a bunch of patients, if you give them all the same dose of TPA, there are some patients where their fibrinogen goes to zero, they lyse all their clot, they're amazingly great from a pulmonary embolus standpoint, and then they're at high risk of bleeding. And then there are other patients where you give them a bunch of TPA, nothing happens. Their fibrinogen is exactly the same. And those are patients who are at high risk of dying from their PE, and they're not going to bleed. And I think we've all kind of seen this. And the concept of giving slow fibrinolysis peripherally and monitoring fibrinogen levels appeal to me because you can see what's going on with the fibrinogen. So if you have a patient who is incredibly hyperfibrinolytic and their fibrinogen goes to zero, you can kind of see that happening in real time and potentially stop the fibrinolytic. Whereas if you see the fibrinogen is flat, you know that the patient's not at high risk of bleeding, but they may be at high risk of having a PE. So I did that for a while. And you know, I do think that it worked. I didn't really collect data on this But the problem was, honestly, it drove people crazy, and eventually I had to stop doing it. Yeah, I ran into a similar problem from the other end. I loved your 25 milligram over 24-hour protocol, but the ICUs refused to take the patients until they completed it. They said, this is completely off-label. We have no basis by which to do this. We're not going to stop you. We can't stop you, but we're not going to take the patient until 
you're done. So I would have to leave them in the EDICU for 24 hours. It was annoying, and it was a lot easier to just give them the half dose over an hour, but that seemed too much, and I still was worried about bleeding in patients who had risk factors for bleeding. Now, what we have in front of us now, and you actually found this abstract and told me about this, and it wasn't published in the literature, and we've said we should get it published in the literature, and like we actually have, we're at the end of that sojourn to make that happen. But now, when we actually have trial of low risk massive in the literature, twenty five milligrams over six hours, will this change your practice? Ooh, that's a really tough question. I do think that this could push me towards considering twenty five milligrams of TPA for very niche patients, for high risk submassive patients who you're worried that they're going to die, you feel the need to do something, you're worried that they're going to bleed, and they're not good candidates for catheter-directed embolectomy, which is new kid on the block. And that has emerged since over the last couple of years at my center. And that has, that, I think that's a reasonable option for a lot of these patients. And I think this gets back to a lot of things about what's institutionally acceptable, what people are comfortable with, and it's kind of the whole thing is fascinating, for example, because I think you could make a very cogent argument that giving 25 milligrams of TPA systemically is probably supported by more evidence than performing catheter directed embolectomy. But at the same time, pe people are very comfortable with the concept of catheter directed embolectomy because it's just been accepted. It's a procedure. We refer another service to do it. I think the whole psychology of asking another service to take on a risk for us. It's really interesting. You could probably have a whole cast on that. Yeah, for sure. And I wouldn't even put this in a dichotomous choice type situation because I could easily see having a pathway of saying to the patient, like, look, this is less of an interventional procedure. We don't have to go through the risks of the periprocedural stuff. And there are risks to the catheter direct lysis. They're not high, but they're there. Let's try the 25 over six, in which I think the bleeding risk is extremely low. And we'll see the results in real time. This is not a therapy like TPA for stroke where, you know, we don't know what it's going to do for months out. We'll see pretty much instantly. And then if that doesn't work, then you still have the option of transitioning to a catheter strategy. I'm sure the interventionists would want to wait a little while to let that TPA dissipate. But I just see this, even in a place that has the opportunity to do catheter direct lysis, it just seems a cleaner way to go. 100%. And to take a step back, I think it's worth fleshing out what we're trying to achieve here because I, just for folks who aren't really familiar with it. So for a while, there was a concept that um, TPA could improve long-term outcomes as far as avoiding chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And I think the PITHO trial put that to bed. So if the patient can survive their hospitalization, I don't think anything that we're really doing here is going to affect their long-term outcomes. But there is this group of patients who are high risk of massive patients. And if you just admit them to the ICU or the floor and put them on heparin, they may have a cardiac arrest and they can become very unstable. So I think in my mind, the goal here is really just dropping the pulmonary pressure enough so that they're not going to die within the next like week. I agree with all that, but I will put back to you because I'm not because I have an answer because I've been continuously curious about this. Pitho did not really enroll the patients we wanted to see them enroll. We wanted to see them enroll patients with signs of radical instability. And most of their patients just had slightly elevated troponins, which wouldn't even put me in a high-risk submassive group in my mind. That just gets you into the submassive category. It doesn't get you to the high-risk submassive. Do we really know the answer on pulmonary hypertension from chronic thromboembolism? Do we really have that answer yet? Everyone's closed their minds to, yeah, that's not a thing that, that thrombolytics offer, but I don't know if that really has been answered. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's still possible. And I do 
think that there are a lot of different patient phenotypes within this hodgepodge of patients. For example, there are some patients who just have like clot and I'll admit them to the ICU. And you know, I had a patient recently, we gave 100 milligrams of TPA and continued to just have this huge clot burden, clearly was not being lysed. And I do wonder if you do a procedure on that patient or if you remove the clot somehow, is there a reduced risk of chronic thromboembolic hypertension? But I think, you know, we're stuck with the data that we have. And I think the PITHO is the best data. And I think at this point in time, I think we're stuck with that. I would be open to better data. The problem too is like it's hard generating data in the pulmonary embolism sphere. So we see one really large multi-center randomized control trial coming out like every five or 10 years. I think we're stuck with it. Yeah, you're right. Now, what I'd love to see these PERT team study groups doing is look at the 25 over six versus catheter directed lysis. I doubt they'll ever do that trial. It's really, in some ways, there's some academic capture that would make that trial less desirable, I think. I think they're very tied to an interventional route. Do you think I'm right in that assertion or do you think they'd be open to saying maybe we could just dispense entirely with interventional radiology and all of the various manufacturers that may or may not be supporting their various events and groups, et cetera, and go with something that really has no manufacturer who is going to be pushing for it? I don't know. I think it probably depends on local practice and who's driving the PERT team and how excited people are about doing procedures and things like that. One really interesting comparison that I think is worth making is that this study that you just published is a single arm trial demonstrating safety and efficacy, really more efficacy, honestly. I don't think you can really claim safety on a study of this size, but we have safety from other sources using this dose of TPA. But in comparison to this, there are other single arm trials of directed TPA that showed similar efficacy that got like enormous publication and just so much interest. So it's just fascinating to me how very methodologically similar trials. The ones on device therapy are heavily promoted and funded and get a ton of act of interest, whereas it took years to just get this study into the literature. Yeah, I, I completely hear what you're saying. I think that's more to blame for the authors involved originally because they submitted to a few cardiology journals, which was their area of expertise, and they had so much other research going on that they're like, they don't want this, screw them. And I think if they had tried to put it in a critical care journal when it was first, when the research data first came in, I think they would have been easily, they would have succeeded easily, I think. So it sounds like you, you'd say this, you'd do this in a niche population. And that sounds more like it's just an institutional bias towards if you go without the catheter-directed lysis route, anything goes wrong, that's just the nature of the beast. Versus if you do this, you're putting yourself out there. If there was complete institutional buy-in of this as a strategy, in fact, your ICU made a protocol, really putting this out there as a safe, departmental-supported thing, would you be more likely to use it? I think absolutely. And I do think that it's really helpful when departments and institutions come up with PE pathways and everyone sits down and says, these are options that we agree that are useful, and they write down a policy. And then if there's an adverse event, you can say, you know, we followed this policy, we all sat down and created this policy. And I realized that the evidence is not perfect. A lot of experts agree that this was a reasonable thing. So I think that if there could be institutional buy-in, I think that can help things a lot. All right. What questions should I be asking right now, Josh, that I haven't asked that you want to get out? One, one thing that I do want to talk, just mention, and I think is super interesting to me and remains a major source of frustration to me, is how to best combine TPA and heparin. Because we just talked about the fact that you give TPA to patients, some of them don't respond a lot, some of them respond a ton. Sometimes the fibrinogen falls to these scary low levels. 
And one challenge that I have very frequently is trying to figure out, you just gave someone TPA, their fibrinogen super low. What is the best way to give them heparin? I don't want them to bleed, but at the same time, they just had this huge clot and I want to heparinize them in a reasonably prompt fashion. And one interesting thing that I think is worth pointing out in this paper is there were some bleeding events. They were relatively minor. There was some epistaxis and stuff, but it all happens after initiating heparin. And I think that kind of is consistent with my experience and my bias, which is that I think you could give like 25 milligrams of TPA to like almost anyone. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have gone on record saying that, but I think it, it, the problem becomes when you give TPA to someone and you push their fibrinogen down, and then you give them like a loading dose of heparin, and you put them on a heparin protocol. So I think it's just fascinating. And I, I continue to wait for definitive information on how to do this. Yeah, I think you've hit on a real hot topic in this area. I was always I following the Jeff Klein recommendations of just give low molecular weight heparin, regardless of whether you're going to give TPA. And then it was sitting there. It was actually your work that made me a little bit more leery. And I've stopped giving heparin for patients. I know I'm going to progress down some form of interventional route or give exogenous TPA. And in this study, they held off on the heparin even though it was a low dose of TPA. And I, I think that might be part of why they had such beneficial safety outcomes. And you're absolutely right. The study's too small to say definitively, but they didn't have any in the patients they had. And that's been my experience as well, is I haven't had bleeding when I have not been given concomitant heparin with my TPA. And I think, yeah, I think the safest way to go is to hold it. And then when to start it is the tough question. And whether you start with a bolus or not, I think for me is pretty easy. I see no reason. I think they have enough residual to just start the heparin at a point where their PT hits the point at which I'd like to maintain that. And that's what I'm doing right now. Is that your practice as well, Josh? So our, my practice is variable and this is challenging because our hospital changed from titrating heparin based on PT to titrating it based on 10A level. And there's a lot of subtleties here, which I think are really important. So if you give a bunch of TPA to a patient and you push down their fibrinogen level really low, that low fibrinogen level will be reflected in the PTT. So if you're titrating a heparin infusion against the PT, the heparin, the PT will be high and that will push your heparin infusion down and that introduces a level of safety. So alternatively, if you're titrating heparin against the 10A level, the 10A level does not see the low fibrinogen. So the 10A level is just going to titrate your heparin to a therapeutic heparin level and then you can get into a situation where you have low fibrinogen and like a therapeutic heparin level, and that's problematic. And it's really challenging because traditionally studies have initiated heparin when the PT is less than twice normal, and it just gets really convoluted. That's a very subtle but incredibly important point. Have you discussed this exact idea in other places? I haven't seen this from you yet. No, honestly, this was something I just stumbled across because I've been continuing to struggle with this, and for a while... I was in the practice of checking fibrinogen levels. And if the fibrinogen was super scary low, I was sometimes even giving patients cryo precipitate to bring it back up. And I don't know that's the right thing to do. I'm not necessarily advocating that. And giving cryo to someone who just had a huge clot is scary. But at the same time, like giving a bunch of heparin to someone with a fibrinogen level of 60 is also scary. And so I've just been trying to integrate my practice into other protocols. And I think an accepted protocol is to initiate heparin when the PTT is less than twice normal, but that concept is based on 
heparin protocol titrated off PTT. And I think now that we're using a 10A level, we might run into problems with that. Yeah. I'd like to see a poem crit post on this exact topic. And, <laughs> no. <laughs> because I think even if the post simply says, we don't know, because then I could take that post and share it with some of the really smart hematologists that we both know and see, because I think that is a remarkably important wrinkle in that you know, 10A seems like a superior way to go, but all of a sudden, no, there's new parts that aren't built into that because who expects you to be messing with the fibrinogen levels with a agent like TPA? Yeah, I, I think that is rich fruit to be mined, or that's a mixed metaphor. Uh, there, there's something in there important to have out there. Anything yeah. else we should talk about, Josh? Yeah, I think this paper overall is just super interesting as far as just trying to create personalized TPA dosing and personalized approaches to the spectrum of disease that is submassive and high-risk submassive PE. And I think this is just an ongoing struggle that we've all had for years and we'll continue to have it just as far as managing risk versus benefit and personalized therapy versus protocolized therapy. And it's just a continual struggle. But I do, I have believed and I continue to believe that adding these potential options could improve our care. Yeah. And you know what this study is the first for, in at least in my a recollection is this was massive PE. These were patients on vasopressors. It shows like even those patients don't need to be rushed to do something stupid like full dose TPA or even half dose TPA. You'd still have the ability to use very low and therefore much safer doses and still get the job done. And you haven't burned any bridges by doing so. If the patient progresses, then you could change your treatment algorithm at that point. But I think it, it gives you an option now for a high-risk group to do something instantly, because sometimes catheter-directed takes a while to organize, that could start stabilizing them and yet not put you at enormous risk, like I feel every time I give 100 milligrams of alteplase to these patients. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Wong data comparing 50 to 100 of alteplase, which showed no difference, for me really suggests that we should probably very rarely be using 100 milligrams of TPA. If someone rolls in and they're young and otherwise totally fine and they have a massive PE, I think 100 is fine. But I think in most cases, 50 is probably better. We've instituted a, a regular stop point, even on the full dose patients, because it's going over the two hours. At one hour, the clinicians have to come to the bedside and make a determination. If the patient's markedly improved, you have to ask yourself, is it worth rolling the dice again to do that second hour's worth? Because all we're really trying to do as we continue to believe the pitho data is just get them through their hospitalization safely. And so if they're markedly improved on their vital signs, I think it might be better to just stop at that point. Absolutely. All right, man. Such a pleasure as always. And yeah. we'll talk again soon. Thanks. I hope you liked it. Please comment in the show notes as to whether you would do this right now or you think it needs an additional study before you'd even think about using this dose um, and uh, what problems you see with doing this. And uh, I will just mention before I go, uh, summer seems to be a really slow time for coaching. Uh, Rob Orman and I have both experienced the same thing. No one seems to want to get coached. I understand that. Uh, but if you're starting to plan for the fall and you're interested in making your career more enjoyable, in avoiding burnout, in figuring out how to get organized, uh, in productivity, in life, how to figure out how to do uh, proper notes for all your reading, how to uh, figure out your to-do strategies, anything along those lines, um, then consider getting coaching with Medicine Coaching. If you're interested in that, come to mcrit.org slash coaching, mcrit.org slash coaching. This has been Scott Weingart for the MCRIT Podcast saying, 
，拜拜。